to content found on thebestdayever.com from David Wolf and New Horizon Health, Inc. is for informational purposes only and is in no way intended as medical advice, as a substitute for medical counseling, or as treatment cure for any disease or health condition, and nor should it be construed as such because that would be illegal. Always work with a qualified health professional before making any changes to your diet, supplement use, prescription drug use, lifestyle, or exercise activities. Please understand that you assume all risks from the use, non-use, or misuse of this information. Greetings, everybody. This is David Avocado Wolf, and I'm joined today by Dr. Sangeeta Patty, and she runs the Sajun Institute for Restorative and Regenerative Medicine down in Orlando, Florida, and she's an amazing doctor, a tremendous experience. She's mostly practiced in obstetrics and gynecology and board certified in that area. She's been trained in anti-aging medicine. She's going to be joining us at the Women's Wellness Conference, which is coming up February 10th through 12th, 2012. That's coming up really shortly at the Orange County Hilton right there just south of Los Angeles. We are going to discuss a lot of amazing things with Dr. Patty in just a moment, but I want to tell you a little bit more about what Dr. Patty is up to. Dr. Patty has run the Sejun Institute for Restorative and Regenerative Medicine, which offers integrated evidence-based medical therapies combining conventional, natural, and complementary modalities. That means acupuncture, chiropractic, massage, homeopathy, oriental medicine, far infrared therapy, nutrition, and she's using a restorative model that aims to restore the optimal functioning of the human body through a number of different areas, through bioidentical hormones, nutrition, detoxification, mind balance, body balance. So you can see that Dr. Patty is pretty much at the cutting edge of the integration of what's been learned in Western medicine along with what we've learned in nutrition and natural healing. And I understand she's about to publish a book. She's going to tell us a little bit about that. But she's also focused in some specific areas, hormones and cancer. We're going to discuss those things. But with no further ado, I want to let Dr. Patty speak for herself. How are you doing, Dr. Patty? Thanks for joining me. I'm doing great. Thank you. And now I understand you're in California. I happen to be in California. But you practice in, in Orlando, and you've got a quite, a quite a practice going on down there. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with your, with your practice in Orlando and what's happening with the patients down there. In Orlando, we basically started in – we actually opened that institute in 2005 – and that was the year that I had taken about a year and a half off from practicing obstetrics and gynecology to try to practice a little bit more holistic complementary medicine, chiefly because I had the exposure abroad uh, working under Bill Gates' foundation money in seeing that pharmacy and surgery was really very, very limited as a toolbox to treat and cure and restore optimal function to the body. So after taking a little time to relearn my biochemistry and my nutrition and all of that, we opened up Sejun Medical Center in 2005, and it was interesting. The first month, I saw only five patients the entire month, but it was great because it gave me an opportunity to spend almost one week on each patient, learn with them. But currently, we're seeing about 55 patients a day, and we have a center that uh, has three medical doctors in it, uh, two chiropractic doctors, two uh, oriental medicine doctors. We have craniosacral treatment therapists, lymphatic drainage, uh, far infrared. We offer quantum reflex analysis, IV therapies, um, galvanic therapies, 
um, ultrasound, regional hyperthermia. Our toolbox is wide. I would say that the thing that's happened over the last six years that has been uh, really gratifying to me is that by expanding our toolbox from the pharmacy and surgery model, I've been able to really help a lot more people than I ever helped the other way. And interestingly, I transitioned from a doctor who was doing somewhere between three to four surgeries minimum a week to somebody who was doing three to four a month to doing a couple a year and finally deciding that I actually don't have the skills to stay in the operating room anymore. So I keep my privileges um, at the hospital, but we have, you know, basically very few patients who have to go there. Our programs are, are wide. We have, you know, weight loss programs. We have wellness programs. We have programs. Uh, I, I would say the most exciting part of what's going on over the last three years is that we went from people viewing us as a place to come for wellness medicine to basically people reaching out to us for degenerative conditions. So we've now had the opportunity to treat, you know, many cases of adrenal fatigue and chronic fatigue and rheumatoid arthritis and Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, ALS, and definitely a lot of cancer because, as you may know, the incidence of cancer is increasing and there's lots of reasons for that. But our program is mostly focused with a very, very simple philosophy, which is restore the body's functions by restoring the missing ingredients, either nutrition or hormones, remove toxicities by both reducing exposure and um, helping the body to eliminate. And what I mean by doing both those things is reducing exposure to toxins has to do with educating ourselves and allowing that education to be the power we need to choose. It gives us, you know, knowledge gives us power, and that power is to choose whether we want to be exposed to lotions with petroleum in them or lotions that are edible because everything we put on our skin is absorbed like we would eat it. So that part of our program has mostly to do with education. And then, of course, we work to enhance the elimination systems of the body, the gallbladder, the liver, the kidney uh, skin, lymphatic system, bowels, dealing with the mind, both the uh, conscious uh, factors that we're aware of, but also some of the subconscious factors, which we may not be aware of, but we realize now that even some of these subconscious factors have a great uh, impact on our immune system and our recovery ability. Um, and then, of course, structural body things like Simple things, like I used to do C-sections all the time, and now I realize that when you do a C-section, you cut across vital meridians on the uh, acupuncture planes that affect everything below and everything above. So structural body things and recovering those. So with this five-point model, we were initially applying it to people who were coming in saying, oh, I, I need a little more energy, or I'm not sleeping well, or I'm depressed. But now we've taken that and applied it to restore function, say, in a cancer patient where we're trying to restore optimal immune function. We know quite well that cancer cells develop in everybody's body every single day. Our an immune system, which is a healthy immune system, will be able to cap that, catch that cell and remove it from the system. And usually the active cell there is the natural killer cell. What we're finding is that 
It's your innate immunity that ultimately keeps you from being diagnosed with cancer and also from keeping you from, keeps you from having a recurrent cancer because, uh, from the first cancer cell to a diagnosis is generally 15 to 20 years, which is astounding because the fact is that it takes 15 to 20 years for one cell to divide enough to become one centimeter. When you have one centimeter, all of a sudden the MRI can pick up, pick it up. But guess what? You've been growing this thing for years by that time. Let's talk about that a little bit because that's such an interesting area. And I really want to focus on cancer because you seem to be a very adept student of healing. You've got obviously a very interesting modality that you're working with. Let's talk about the origins of cancer because cancer is a 20th and 21st century epidemic but it wasn't beforehand, and it seems there are emotional components, stress components, toxicity components. How do you describe the origins of cancer? That's a really great question. So, you know, there used to be this thought process that cancer is basically genetic, and when we screened people for cancers, we would say, well, is there any cancer in the family? And if there's no cancer in the family, then we do not, uh, consider that to be a big risk factor. But what we're finding is that if you look at most cancers, the genetic component that's familial is accounting for about 9%. So you take 100 patients with breast cancer, nine of them will have a strong genetic component. And out of most of the people who have a genetic component, if you take 100 of them, most of them do not develop breast cancer. So at the end of the day, we know that the majority of a cancer is accounted for by defects in the immune system. And those defects are caused by suboptimal function in those five areas we talk about. So when we're talking about the origin of cancer, we're really talking about some simple things. Like I can give you a couple of examples. If we look in the hormonal area, we know that melatonin, is a major natural killer cell activator. It is one of our most important immune function hormones that there is. But melatonin productions drop to about 50% by the time that we are uh, 30 or mid-30s. And so by the time we're 45 and 50, our melatonin levels are sitting in the 10th percentile. So obviously that's one hormone that we look at carefully. Another hormone that's responsible for controlling proliferation of cancer cells is progesterone. We know that in women with low progesterone, they have a five-fold increase in breast cancer and a ten-fold increase in all cancers. So I'm giving two examples, but hormonally, there are clearly hormonal balance is one of the factors that needs to be considered. Let's dive a little bit deeper on those two issues because... We have a pretty educated audience that we're speaking to, and you're speaking about melatonin and progesterone. There's two issues that come up for me right away. One is on melatonin, I keep thinking about a very a very similar, simple type of compound like melatonin that has very powerful immunological effects, which is indole-3-carbinol. And I know you know a lot about that. So I was wondering if you could kind of chime in about indole-3-carbinol or I3C. And then on progesterone, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the problem that, that uh, with aromatization, where the progesterone isn't, like the woman is producing progesterone or she's taking progesterone cream, but when it gets into the metabolism, it flips over and becomes a bad estrogen. And, and how do we deal specifically with that? 
Right. So both of those, those are excellent questions, and both of those actually tie into the same answer, which is that the most important hormonal imbalance, which puts us at risk for cancer, is how the liver metabolizes the estrones, which are E1. If those estrones are methylated appropriately in the liver, then they convert into 2-hydroxymethylated estrone and also 4 and 16-hydroxy, and 4-hydroxy is methylated. So you need the methyl group, and you also need a liver that has enough of the coenzyme methyltransferase enzyme to actually methylate the particular hormone. What happens over time is that although the body's production of some of the favorable hormones decreases, even if you never take a hormone, the body's production of E1 and unmethylated E1s increases, no matter what you do, because it's basically produced in fat tissue, and the body fat composition changes over time. And in the meantime, the ovaries are not producing any of the good ones. So if you want to make it, put it sort of in a, a simple way, are good, the protective products go down and the unprotective ones go up. One of our main ways of combating that particular uh, methyl, methylation defect, there's a couple of them. One is the lower your body fat, the less estrone you're going to make and the less you're going to be converting. The second thing is that you can, you can uh, enhance that uh, entire pathway with cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, watercress, um, Brussels uh, sprouts, and even broccoli sprouts. Any of these things are going to give you um, both sulfur groups and methyl groups, which are critical for the detoxification of these hormones by the liver. If you look at the amount that you would have to actually take in per day, it becomes a real volume. I mean, you, you would probably be eating a cup of uh, these cruciferous at least three times a day, which some of us can do. But because that is not something which most people can do, taking supplements such as indole-3-carbonyl or uh, diindole-methane, which are methylators, uh, can help quite a bit. And I always get the question, well, is it better to take indole-3-carbonyl? Is it better to take diindole-methane? And it turns out from my clinical experience on seeing how these numbers actually change, um, that that a combination of things is always the best way to go, and there is no best one to take. We actually can measure these metabolites in the urine. So on a routine basis, on any patient, a male, a female, it doesn't matter because it's just as relevant in males. We know quite well that the exact same pathway defects that are jeopardizing women, the same exact pathway defects that are jeopardizing men to develop prostate cancer. Prostate cancer is a function of inappropriate metabolism of estrone in men. So you can quantify this by looking at the urine, and it turns out we can actually measure urine metabolites and find out whether or not you're methylating and disposing of your estrogens appropriately or not. Let's talk about a couple methylating foods that are just even beyond the cruciferous vegetables like beets and goji berries, which are loaded in trimethylglycine and even the supplement trimethylglycine. What are your feelings about those three foods or those three substances? Well, certainly the better way to get your um, nutrients is going to be in the form of food. 
and superfoods simply because the way that nature and I'm 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 saying it I know it's something that that most people know this but the way that nature has uh put the nutrients together and they're presented in the body is the way that actually they're utilized so when we start to take supplements we've compromised that a little bit it's it's always better to take a food source and trimethylglycine is also a very good source of methylators. I mean, usually in my patients who have methylation defects, I'm putting them on the supplements. I'm putting them on about 1,000 milligrams of trimethylglycine, usually somewhere between 2 to 5 grams of MSM, diendol methane and indole-3-carbonyl. Make sure you have got magnesium on board. Um, so there's... There's usually a combination of things. You can also use SAM-E. Um, but at the end of the day, I really do think that the food sources are the better sources. Okay, that's awesome. Now, let me just digress for just a second. It's just a question that I personally am interested in, and that is with, with people who have been on recreational drugs or heavy amounts of pharmaceutical drugs over a long period of time, what I'm noticing is if they get on good methylators like trimethylglycine or beet juice, they actually have a very it has a very strong liver healing effect, or somehow the drugs have had a very strong effect in robbing methyl groups. Do you have any experience with that? And can you uh, can yes, you I can, I can about that? definitely tell you. Look, first of all, your observation. I also have had the same observation, so I I think that that's absolutely the case. But I think that the methyl group defect is not just coming from pharmaceuticals. I think that if you look, I mean, part of it is pharmaceuticals. Part of it is just the environmental toxicities, as you know, that we're being exposed to. Even if we inhale, say, a, we're, we're using Clorox or something to, to, to clean something in the house, anything that we're putting on our body, we're inhaling, we are exposed to so much more toxicity that we are using up our sulfurs, our methyls, the liver is basically being overloaded. But the second part of this is that the more cooked our food is, the more methyl groups you use. So if you are eating raw food, you're conserving 30% methyl groups compared to if you eat cooked food. So you will run out of methyl groups much faster eating cooked food. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. Now, let's jump back onto the hormones here for a second. So basically what you're driving at, I mean, what I'm, what I'm reading through what you're saying, and it's what I've kind of arrived at through my education from the doctor friends I know and the reading I've been doing, is that progesterone is anti-cancer and testosterone is anti-cancer. Is that, is that a reasonable statement? Can we say that? Yes. The data shows that, and this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Roden, in 2004, that men with the lowest testosterone levels have the highest levels of cancer, and men with the highest testosterone levels have the lowest levels of cancer. However, men with the highest estrogen levels have the highest cancer, estrone levels. So that was one connection. And, the, and, and the estrone one, being E1, as you, E1, as you described earlier. E1. And then progesterone in women there have been now multiple studies to show that progesterone decreases the influx of estrone into breast cells and into reproductive cells. So it cuts it by a third. So if you have progesterone on board, instead of absorbing 100 molecules of estrogen into your breast cell, you absorb 33 molecules into the breast cell. And these studies have been done in vitro, so they're, you know, it's pretty accurate. 
Incredible. That's awesome. So let, let's start getting back to the general principles with some of these types of cancers like prostate cancer and breast cancer. Um, and then I'd lump in there also ovarian cancer. So what would you say are the most important general principles in either preventing and or beating these types of cancers? Well, I mean, I think one of the things I've learned that in general, the most important principle guiding uh, and separating those people who beat cancer from those people who don't, 50% of that battle, in my opinion, is the belief that you can beat it. And, that makes sense. You know, and, and I have definitely found a huge difference between people who believe they can beat it and people who are have been sentenced to death, basically, by being told that they have 30 to 100 days or whatever. Get your affairs in order. So the belief that you can beat something is one of the strongest general principles. The second general principle would be to accept the disease as a blessing and a gift that will be a transformative life experience for you to your next phase in life. And I do think that if you even talk to most people who have gone through cancer and who have beaten cancer, they will tell you their entire life changed from the the way they viewed life, the, way, the things that they spent their time on, the things that became important to them. So cancer diagnosis is a wake-up call because, after all, you had the cancer for 15 to 20 years. It's just that now you know about it. And what normally happens when people get the diagnosis and they find out about something that's been growing in the body for a while is that it accelerates the growth of the cancer for a short period of time simply because the immune system becomes so significantly depressed by that news alone. And that's right. actually been shown in studies. So once you get over that hump, the rest of this is restoring the immune system. And in fact, if you look at the president of ASCO this past year, the one statement that he made is that we have entered the era of Harnessing the power of the innate immune system. That was the statement by the president of the of the group. If we're not beating cancer with chemo, radiation, and surgery, yes, we might reduce the bulk. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be a long-term survivor, you're going to harness the power of the innate immune system. Let's jump into that a little bit with, with some nutrition and what you perceive and what you know to be some of the best foods, superfoods, herbs for activating immunity because that seems, I, that's what it, my, my research has led me to, that it's all going to be about the immune system when it comes to cancer. So that's really powerful to hear that. What are, what are your feelings about the best nutrients to activate immunity to prevent cancer and fight cancer? Right. So nutrient-wise, first of all, there's a, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of different ones, and some of them are better than others, but there's a lot of really good ones. Um, but before I say that, I just should mention that 75% of your innate immunity is controlled by the health of your intestines. 75% of, um, of the lymphoid structures in our body are actually in the gut. So the first thing would be to make sure that the intestinal tract is not further stimulated by other things and is, is, has a healthy absorptive mucosa so that all of the, the lymphatic tissue which lives in the gut is active. Now, as far as particular foods, what I would say is that, you know, and the way that we determine this is 
by measuring natural killer cell function. And you can imagine that what I'm about to say, I can't, Sometimes when you're doing multiple things, it's extremely difficult for you to know which one elevated the natural killer cell the most unless you take a patient and only give them, you know, reishi mushroom or only give them, you know, uh, PSK coriolis, which is another one of the mushrooms we use. And we wouldn't do that on any patient because we've now seen that the synergy is what corrects things. But I can tell you some of the things that we use extremely actively. First of all, we use a set of nutritional components just to restore the gut. And that set is usually centered around glutamine, um, aloe arborescence, and a probiotic and an enzyme. That's our base that we give to every single person to make sure that the intestines are protected. And I can tell you that simple regimen has protected people from the side effects of radiation, the side effects of chemo, and and also allowed them to increase their albumin levels when they're in a cachectic state and trying to get their weight up. Um, and then the superfoods that we're using the most specifically for immunity are going to be the mushrooms are big. So, you know, AHCC, PSK coriolis, reishi mushroom, and, and you know, the Ganoderma that comes from that. Those are probably the three big ones that we use, but there's a whole list of other ones. We use maitake. Um, sometimes the way that we're determining the exact combination that we use is not coming from just a clinical judgment guess. We are also energetically testing uh, people to see which ones suit them better. You're basically, you use kinesiology. We use a form of kinesiology. And, okay. And, so, and sometimes I can tell you that I can, you know, I, would, I could have a patient who I have four options for bringing their iron up and if I test them, I will find that the one I get, I pick will bring up their iron much, much faster than if I had just clinically said, well, let's try this one. So we use a combination to sometimes figure out which one is going to be the best for the particular patient. But mushrooms are a big component of what we do. Other things that we are using on a regular basis in terms of superfoods is combinations of, um, we use a lot of, uh, of these fruits like noni, goji, acai, uh, we use... You mentioned aloe. Is it, wasn't that one of the ones for protecting the gut? I just want to make sure I oh, heard that correct. 100% of our cancer patients are on aloe. Uh, on aloe, okay. Yeah, and and we're using... Yeah, aloe is, is really a strong uh, mechanism of correcting gut inflammation. My overall... <laughs> My overall assessment is that what it's doing in the intestine is actually correcting inflammation. But I, I, I can tell you just with that regimen how many people will drop what we call a C-reactive protein in the blood mm-hmm. just on that regimen. So, and, and, of course, along with it, we're asking them to avoid meat, fish, egg, and dairy because those are inflammatory components. And out of them, the most inflammatory component, of course, is going to be casein from cow's milk. Right. Okay. So it's like an allergic inflammatory it, response. It really is. It's kind of interesting. Um, it it it's not as much allergic as it is that casein happens to be one of the most inflammatory proteins you can take in. Our, the human body wasn't meant to see it. It's almost like a foreign um, a foreign protein, and the body mounts a very strong antibody re- reaction to casein, whether you're allergic to it or not. And interestingly those antibodies cross-react with the pancreas, islet type 2 cells, which means that 
people who drink more milk, and this study was published actually last year, have more type 1 diabetes. Yeah, that's oh, that's so interesting. I, I, that's that's what I actually have been finding out from just talking to parents who have kids who were diagnosed with type one diabetes. Is that there's a connection to dairy products, to mm-hmm. cow's milk in particular. That's so interesting. Now, what about goat's milk? Does that contain casein? As far as I recall, it has it very little. It has some casein, but not okay. a huge amount. Yeah, it, it's much much lower. Okay. And I I think that you know. It's hard to make a conclusion because some of these conclusions come from the conclusions of the large study that was done in China, and some people may know of the study as the China study, which has now made it into the the book and the movie Forks Over Knives. Um, But if you look at the details of the study, they were really looking at um, people drinking cow's milk. They expanded their conclusion to all dairy because because but the predominant dairy was cows. So right. my suspicion would be that, you know, the casein is the major problem and goat's milk is very low in casein. And actually, if you look at um, a child's response to goat's milk versus cow's milk and you look at the immune response, it's about 80% lower with goat's milk. Um, wow. You look at any animal even, a, a, any animal that you're bringing up like a, like a, you know, like a puppy or whatever, they do much better on goat's milk than they'll ever do on cow's milk. Mm-hmm. So, uh, okay. I, you know, just from that alone, those observations, I, I believe that if somebody studied cow's, uh, goat's milk, they'd find that it was actually quite a bit better than the cow's milk. Yeah, and another thing that's come up just, you know, on this particular issue is people who eat raw butter do, but diabetics I know who eat raw butter do much better on raw butter than any other dairy product, and it must be because basically the, you're filtering out the protein. But so that, you know, that's sort of the milk thing. But other superfoods that we use in a big way, curcumin, um, curcumin is one of the ones that's been probably published the most widely among uh, the food sources in terms of its anti-cancer activity. It's phenomenal. Um, So curcumin is one. And then uh, ECGC, which has been well shown to prevent the transfer and the passage of cancer cells through the... um, the vascular borders, uh, and prevent metastasis. Um, okay, so, so that's, that's ECGC. What What is that ECGC again? ECGC is that? basically the active extract from green tea. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, not, so, so turmeric so, is where the cucurbits are coming from, and then ECGC is coming from green coming tea. Coming from green tea, right. Sorry, I should have probably said it that way. Um, and uh, so these are, are, are two other big components. Resveratrol has been very well studied. There are a lot of them that are backed by a lot of data, but the thing to remember is that just because something isn't backed by data, it may just be that it wasn't studied yet. So we utilize a lot of combination of things. We use a lot of chlorella, spirulina, always organic, always raw. Raw is very important to us, and we also um, we also frequency test and energetically test our our supplements because we found that there happens to be a difference between the ones that test well and the ones that don't test well. Uh, lacuma, uh, I mean, I could keep going. We use a lot of nuts, Brazil nuts. We, you know, we do nutritional profiles on everybody. Mm-hmm. We do nutritional testing. So we actually have um, a very uh, decent way of measuring intracellular nutrition and intracellular antioxidant function. Um, we're using a, a 
you know, a, a, a test called SpectraCell, which basically they uh, multiply the cells and then challenge them in individual Petri dishes. So um, you're able to identify functionally what is below the 25th percentile. What we're really looking for is bringing it up above the 75th percentile. So a lot of the nutritional recommendations are also made based upon what the defects are. So, for example, in a lot of our cancer patients, we'll see selenium deficiency. And we know very well that the best way to get your selenium is going to be to get it from food, like Brazil nuts, which one Brazil nut can have up to 200 micrograms of selenium. So eating somewhere between two to four Brazil nuts a day, you're going to get 400 uh, to 800 micrograms of selenium. Uh, that, of course, depends upon the source of the Brazil nut. But, you know, uh, another example is zinc. We we see that for pretty much there's a couple of deficiencies that you will see universally among cancer patients. One is zinc. One zinc is, is one, huh? Zinc is a zinc. huge one. Zinc, selenium, vitamin C, vitamin D are big ones that I see almost in 80 to 90% of these patients. So if I get zinc deficiency, sure, I can give them zinc. But the better way to give them zinc is to tell them to eat you know, a couple handfuls of raw sunflower seeds. It's going to be presented to them, and, you know, each handful is about a 15 milligrams of zinc. So, and you're, and you're aiming for a corrective dose of about 30. So if they take two handfuls, they're already at that corrective dose. So a lot of this is based upon measurement. So sometimes the food recommendations, in fact, always the food recommendations we made. There's some general ones we give to everybody, um, like the mushrooms and the gut protocol. And then there's things that are much more specific, like if the albumin level is low, we're going to be recommending an albumin-boosting um, uh, smoothie because, uh, as you may know, anybody with an albumin under 3.0 is going to have a much worse prognosis in terms of if they are getting chemo or radiation or even if they're trying to recover. You cannot recover with that low albumin level. So we actually give them a... Um, a smoothie, and it's interesting because we do use whey protein in that smoothie, but whey protein doesn't have casein in it. What, what about hemp seed? Like Edestin is a very good builder of albumin. Has you, have yeah, you found that hemp, as well? We, of course. We, that smoothie has hemp seed in it. It has all kinds of seeds and nuts, and we allow them to alter a little bit to taste. We've got flax in there. We've got, I mean, you, you always, and, and, and another thing I should mention as far as superfoods is that as you may know, the higher the omega-3s you've got, the better control you have of that inflammation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's another big one that we use a lot of. And again, sometimes we're energetically testing for the dose because some people can't tolerate a four to six gram dose, but four to six grams is sometimes where you want to go. Well, doc, I don't know if I've adequately answered your superfood question, but you know, I can, keep, I can ramble on and on forever about the topic because I mean, we use such a wide variety of of things. You know, some of our principles are they have to be organic, they have to be raw. Well, I just wanted to mention for anybody who tuned in late that this is David Avocado Wolf, and I'm speaking with Dr. Patty, and she runs the Sejun Institute for Restorative and Regenerative Medicine down there in Orlando, Florida. And is it just an incredible doctor, board certified in anti-aging medicine, board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, and you're just a wealth of knowledge. I'm so, so elated, actually, that you're going to be joining us um, for our Women's Wellness Conference, which is coming up. So if you're listening right now, you've got one last chance to join us Friday, February 10th through Sunday, February 12th. 
2012 at the Orange County Hilton, just south of Los Angeles. And we're going to get started there on Friday evening and just, just go right through on Sunday evening. It's going to be an incredible weekend. Dr. Patty, what are you going to be doing at the conference? What are you going to be presenting on? What's going to be your focus? Are you going to be focusing on cancer? Yes, I'm going to be focusing on um, our protocols for cancer and more specifically our nutritional protocols, but I I believe I will be talking about um, the entire picture. That's awesome. Now, for those of you who are listening, there's not going to be any webcast to this event like we normally do. This is just going to be a live event, so if you can make it down there to join us, it's going to be well worth your while. We're going to have about 500 people there from all over the world, and then we've got our staff and volunteers and an incredible group of people who are going to be making tonic drinks and all kinds of superfood smoothies, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And, and Dr. Patty, you're going to love that. I mean, we're going to have. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait to see all that. <laughs> it's great great time with all that. So I don't want to keep you any longer. You have given us so much to chew on. I think we're going to have to to meditate on this for a while and just kind of review some of these things that you've said. Very, very interesting information. I'm super excited, by the way, about your knowledge in the area of of hormones and cancer and hormones and aging. And I can't wait to, to pick your brain more when I see you at the Women's Wellness Conference coming up here February 10 through 12. And by the way, if you're listening, www.womenswellnessconference.com. Tickets are available, and we're just right there at the at the last moment before that conference kicks off this Friday. I'm just looking forward to being there. It's so exciting. I'm so glad that you're doing this. Thanks so much for joining us. 